Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. How do you catch Bigfoot on video? How often are they seen in relation to other high strangeness? Where do they come from and where do they go? Almost sounds like the beginning of Cotton Eye Joe. Hello and welcome to the 100 or 1000th and 19th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WOON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on YouTube. Uh, I'm Ben Eno and soon I will be joined by our special guest co-host. We'll keep it a secret for now. And uh, coming to us via Skype is my dad and today's guest. And so today we are very pleased to welcome back young and already legendary filmmaker, and close friend of ours, as well as Monster Hunter, Alexander Petikoff. Alexander is a dear friend and has been an essential part of our field team, especially in the Pennsylvania Flap area case, which we were just talking about off the air. Traveling across the United States and the world, Alexander has looked into Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, the Lake Champlain Monster, uh, Mystery, Big Cats, as well as other Fortan phenomena, such as UFOs, uh, mysterious places ranging from the paranormal Bridgewater Triangle of Massachusetts, not too far from here, uh, to the Hermit, uh, kingdom of North Korea. He has created short documentary films and uh, series on these subjects, among others. Alexander is also a Small Town Monsters crew member. Uh, he has chronicled over 50 Bigfoot sightings and reports in his uh, home state of New Hampshire, many of which uh, have been discussed in his Granite State Bigfoot presentation and will eventually be compiled into a literary work slash database. Alexander has uh, been a guest on various radio programs and podcasts, as well as uh, spoken at various paranormal and cryptozoological events, public libraries, and other venues in New England and across the United States. So, Alexander Petikoff, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you guys so much for having me back on. It's always a pleasure to be with you two fine gentlemen. We've shared many a good moment in the field together. Uh, look fondly on those memories. I was actually just, as I was telling you guys off air, I was talking about our Pennsylvania flap triangle case uh ufo sighting just to a friend of mine last night as we drove back from a camping trip up into northern new hampshire and he thought it was one of the most interesting ufo stories he'd heard so uh, it was amazing to be able to kind of recollect some of those memories from that time period oh yeah well that I, video I, sorry ben oh no uh, that video was on our youtube channel behind the paranormal upon men and you can check it out there so I guess you know we can we can kind of start off by by hopping right into the deep end, Alex. You're you're always working on on something exciting, and so what's what what is the new exciting thing now? What's your what's your latest project? Yeah, so <clears throat> series that I do called Bigfoot Beyond the Trail, which I've been doing for a few years now. It's a YouTube documentary adventure series on the Small Town Monsters channel, and that's something I've been working on. Uh, and I have a bunch of current videos from Alaska, and I actually was up in Alaska this summer for one month. I drove up there, so I spent about a month and a half between driving up to Alaska and back, drove all the way from the East Coast to Alaska, and then I was in Alaska for a month. And we filmed a bunch of different episodes, and I actually also filmed a series called Dark Coast, Hunt for the Alaskan Bigfoot, which is a series that focuses on the area we call Area A, which is a piece of private property on the coastal Kenai Peninsula that a friend of mine owns, and they've had a lot of strange stuff happen there over the years, uh, Bigfoot-related. 
Uh, and it's th- that Darko series is kind of a follow up to my series, uh, my two part series from last year, the Alaskan Coastal Sasquatch parts one and two. So this is basically just a continuation. This time, instead of spending a week on location, we spent two weeks out there, which was incredible, uh, as well as I spent a few other weeks in other parts of Alaska. So that's where some of those episodes came from. A recent project I did was called the Alaska Bigfoot Highway, which documents myself and my brother's journey all the way from uh, Dawson Creek, British Columbia, which is the start of the Alaska Highway, to Delta Junction, Alaska, and into the state of Alaska itself, and some of the kind of Bigfoot stories we were told about along the way. I also had a documentary called Tales from Interior Alaska, which were about Bigfoot stories. We got to spend some time in, in the very geographical center of the state of Alaska and dealt with mosquitoes that were probably the worst mosquitoes I've ever seen anywhere on Earth. They were absolute monsters. Uh, they would not let up. So don't go to Alaska in June, in interior Alaska, I should say, and go out deep into the bush. We went to actually a location of a sighting where somebody had seen what they believed was a Sasquatch crossing the road. So we spent a few days at this location, which was about a three-hour drive out of Fairbanks. So very, very desolate kind of area. Mm. And, yeah, so there's a lot of Alaska-related Bigfoot content I've been working on lately in the form of these documentaries and docu-series. And uh, coming up in the next couple of months, I will have a bunch of British Columbia Sasquatch documentaries. I went to the beautiful Canadian province of British Columbia, prior to my Alaska trip and did a bunch of filming there with uh, people, with some natives there, some First Nations, the New Hulk Nation. I actually have a sweatshirt on from their radio station there. So talking about radio here, uh, I got to go on the radio station there. And they're a a group of people that live in the central coast kind of area of British Columbia. It's about halfway up from Vancouver between the Alaskan panhandle there. Uh, very desolate. It's about a 12-hour drive from Vancouver. And we made that drive and visited this area because they have a rich history of these Sasquatch-like creatures they call Sninik. And it's actually involved in their creation myth. They have 12,000-year-old uh, petroglyph sites that we got to see that have what they call the cosmic sninik, which in their worldview is the sort of where the world came from. So a cosmic Sasquatch, if you will. It's very interesting to spend time with them. I also got to spend time in Harrison Hot Springs, which is a lot closer to the U.S. border, kind of uh, near Vancouver, and that is where the term Sasquatch originates from. From an, It's an anglicized form of the word Saskets, which was from those Salish tribes that inhabited that area. Mm. And that's where some of those, that's where before Bigfoot was known in the 1950s in the U.S., you had Sasquatch stories in Canada. So it kind of became synonymous for that. So those two documentaries will cover British Columbia. But aside from that, it's mostly been Alaska. So it's been a year that's filled with that sort of northwest region of our beautiful North American continent, uh, Alaska, the Yukon, and British Columbia. Do you find, or have you found any significant differences in the in the phenomena itself, or, or is it really just a landscape difference, you know, desolate forests, or, you know, just out in the middle of nowhere? <coughs> what, any significant findings? Yeah, that's a good question, absolutely. Um Biggest, of course, as you mentioned, difference is just that landscape difference. I mean, I've been, at this point, all across North America looking for different Sasquatch, skunk ape kind of related stories, mystery hominids, as 
John Horrigan would call them man beast anthropoids, uh, you know, mm-hmm. lots of different stories. So geographically, of course, British Columbia, Yukon, Alaska, dramatic, gigantic mountains, uh, very deep forests along those rainforests on the coastal regions, of course, those temperate rainforests that are very cold and dark such as uh, exemplified in my Dark Coast series. I mean, we named that series Dark Coast beforehand. Little did we know that when I went out to that location, we would have almost 10 to 12 days of rain and these dramatic, foggy landscapes. It really is a very desolate and sort of uh, creepy-looking environment, as opposed to, say, somewhere in the Colorado Rockies, which are much more coniferous, piney kind of forests with those ponderosa pines a lot drier. Of course, here on the East Coast, you have the more deciduous kind of uh, landscapes up and down the Appalachians, and then down south, the swamps, a very dramatic difference. It's completely flat, but you have these environments that are very rich with reptiles and amphibians, such as in Florida and the Everglades with the stories of the skunk ape. Um, I haven't noticed very many significant differences in the phenomena. I've noticed a lot of patterns that seem to correspond with other areas that are completely geographically unrelated. Of course, there's going to be different wildlife in these areas. So you have reports of Sasquatches or skunk apes, whatever you want to call them, down south being seen uh, eating reptiles, eating hogs, whereas up here in New Hampshire, right, we don't have hogs. We have moose and deer. You have sightings in out west where elk live, of elk being harvested and that sort of thing. So it just seems to be a geographical difference, and I don't know if that creates subspecies or not that's been often theorized but the reported behavior the wood knocking the whooping the throwing of rocks the somewhat aggressive behavior at times seems to be pretty consistent throughout all the different areas i've been to whether it be alaska or northern california or the state of maine there seems to be behavioral consistencies uh, size differences reported in alaska some very large alleged reports, uh, which could be explained by perhaps Bergman's rule. The further north you go, the larger animals get simply because of uh, the need to stay warm and uh, various biological factors. There's a reason why moose in Alaska, for example, are the largest on Earth. They're a lot larger than the moose we have here in New Hampshire. Uh, and you go down south to Florida and you see the white-tailed deer they have down there, and their record deer looks like a small dog compared to the ones we have in, in this neck of the woods. So... Mm. Yeah, I mean, the phenomena seems to be, it has universal traits. There are definitely different, some regional descriptions, though, maybe in terms of some of the appearance. Uh, skunk ape stuff tends to be a little bit shorter, shaggier hair, uh, whereas typically in more mountainous regions, it seems to be more of that Patterson-Gimlin film, short-haired, kind of uh, between an ape, Neanderthal, human-like looking creature, Whereas down south, it seems to be a little shaggier and, and more maybe grisly in appearance, perhaps. Mm. That, that's really interesting because it's it's almost like um, you know you, you look at any sort of you know even just a man, any sort of animal really. I mean, even humans, if you want to toss us into that group as well, where we all exhibit very similar patterns of behavior, and it doesn't really matter where we are. You know, maybe some some you know regional and cultural differences, you know, with humans right. anyway. But it's like you know similar with with a lot of other animals, right? You know, a cat's gonna act like a cat no matter where it is, and arguably, you know, it's it's kind of establishing that it is the same creature, correct? That this is all the same thing. 
That's that's what I believe. Uh, it just seems to make the most sense. You have again, as you mentioned, animals that you can you can find. For example, black bears. It's uh, an animal in the in North America that has one of the widest distributions of any animal out there. You can find. I've seen black bears in Florida. I've seen them here in New Hampshire. I've seen them in Alaska. I've seen evidence of them in Colorado and Washington and basically everywhere. Ohio, West Virginia. Generally, they're the same. They have different regional things they do. So bears in places like Florida and down south, they don't really hibernate. They sort of slow down in the winter, whereas uh, up here in the northeast and places like Alaska and basically anywhere where you have an actual winter season, they will hibernate. Uh, There's even been examples of bears taken from parts of Canada, transplanted into areas of Oklahoma, where there isn't really much of a heavy winter, but these bears will still hibernate in a sort of some sort of a hibernation because that's something that's been ingrained in them through the environment they lived in. So they are they're consistently behaving like bears. Whereas this thing, this Sasquatch phenomenon, seems to be also following in line with that sort of pattern. I mean, there are the vast majority of cases I've come across. It they exhibit sort of behaviors that have been reported in other areas that you can kind of cross reference. And that, for me, the startling consistency has been really interesting, noticing reports from thousands of miles away, from well be, well before the Internet was around, when word of mouth traveled very slowly, and you have reports of similar behavior in areas that are just so geographically diverse. that It, it speaks to me, sort of consistency that a species would have. And like you said, uh, like you mentioned, Ben, humans, you take us different areas, we generally all behave the same we are social ape creatures that's kind of how we operate so we may have cultural differences and language differences and those sorts of things but we're generally still human beings we may have regional adaptations so uh, if this thing is some sort of biological creature or whatever it is even if it's not even if there are weirder aspects to it there still is a consistency in the way it, it, it sort of is reported so that that i find really interesting Mm, that leads me to my next question, uh, unless you have something to say, Dad. Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask, uh, as in our Pennsylvania case, uh, do you find in other areas that uh, other high strangeness phenomena will sometimes accompany Bigfoot appearances? So... Personally, most of the cases I've seen have been more kind of in line with uh, just Bigfoot activity. But in some of these areas that you would aptly call flap areas, window areas, triangle areas, there seems to be a lot going on. So oftentimes, whereas, for example, in a location like my friend's property in Alaska, most of what's been reported has been, you would look at that, and if you were familiar with purported Bigfoot behavior, you would say, okay, this seems to fit the bill for something Sasquatch-like, just based off of what is being reported. But there haven't been any stranger aspects, any glowing orbs, any lights in the sky, or anything associated with that case. But then you look at an area like the Bridgewater Triangle, or uh, the Pennsylvania Triangle case, and there seems to be... Bigfoot things going on. I mean, Paul, you, you've, of course, interviewed the police officer, a famous case in the 60s, who had his cruiser lifted in the Bridgewater Triangle, which I think is a landmark case for the topic, uh, where there seems to be 
Bigfoot activity, but other things going on as well. So I don't know if that necessarily means that Bigfoot is connected to these things, or they just, what is going on? I really have no explanation for that, but it seems to be in these in these window areas, there just seems to be a lot going on in general, maybe even phenomena that aren't necessarily related, but we talk about these flap areas, window areas, and they seem to pop up in a lot of different places. I don't know how to explain them. I just know they're weird. They often are very high crime areas as well. Uh, so there's that hu- that monstrous element which comes from human beings, such as the Bridgewater Triangle, areas like land between the lakes in Kentucky, other places as well, where there just seems to be a lot of different things going on. And that opens up a lot of strange questions. Are there things pretending to be Bigfoot? Is there mimicry going on? I, I really don't even know how to begin to approach that, but uh, trying to keep myself as rational as possible and make sense of it. There are Bigfoot reports that involve high strangeness. In my experience, they are in the minority, but in areas like the Bridgewater Triangle and other places, there seems to be Bigfoot activity going on while there's also other things being reported in the same area. So I I don't know if I make the link that they are necessarily related, but there are certain uh, sightings I've taken and people I've talked to where they did see balls of light and other things associated with a Bigfoot sighting. So... It's, it's a very, once you start looking into it, it's very, very complicated because it makes you wonder what exactly are we dealing with. Uh, is there more, again, is there more than one thing going on? Is there possibly some kind of flesh and blood biological creature and then something that is not flesh and blood? Or there, people have reported ghosts of animals in the past, ghosts of their cats and dogs, other wildlife even. The spectral moose in northern Maine is something that's sort of a folkloric story of a ghostly moose, a Bigfoot ghost, is that possible? I mean, once you kind of go down the rabbit hole, I guess the possibilities are sort of endless. Yes, and oddly enough, that still leads into my next question. So there's there's sort of two camps that have evolved over time, the biological and then the spiritual, and it's it's sort of like the 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 um, the locus of our well, I don't think locus is the right word. It's sort of a, a, a micro, microcosm of our times, where you know you have the highly you know material, and then you have the intuitive, and neither the twain shall meet. And unfortunately, <clears throat> it creates this this very harsh dichotomy where you do have experiences like the Pennsylvania Flap area, like you know um, the Bridgewater Triangle, etc. And you also have your experiences that you've documented, you know, investigations you've been on where it's like, okay, this is very clearly, you know, some sort of simian, a primate, something that's, you know, knocking knocking wood, whooping in the woods, throwing stuff at people, you know, lifting police cars. You know, you, 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 you see that these, you know, these are very obviously flesh and blood things, right? But... You know, there's there's another there's another layer there because there's all these mystical elements that are that are also assigned to the assigned to this creature. You know, whether you look back at the First Nations, you look at Hinduism with the Haruman, you look at you know any any sort of you know folkloric figure that even vaguely resembles the Bigfoot. I mean, arguably, you could say Enkidu of the Mesopotamians is also a Bigfoot-like figure, right? A wild man that's incredibly powerful, living in the wilderness and you know doing whatever he wants. It's it's these figures that have been present throughout folklore. Now you as an investigator, right? You you try to keep your feet on the ground, which I appreciate, and and use use intelligence and discernment to understand. Okay, well, you know, let's see what's really going on here. With with all of these these interviews you've you've conducted, you know, whether it be the cosmic Sasquatch or 
you know, some, you know, run-of-the-mill hunter who just happens to run into something in the woods. How do you personally negotiate this gap between this sort of cosmological nature of Bigfoot and the biological? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's, uh, well, obviously I have my feelings and, and, and uh, beliefs and opinions, uh, theories, I should say, probably first and foremost are just a lot of this is theorizing because we do not have sort of a specimen or something to be able to examine, right? There's no Bigfoot in a zoo. So you're, you're left with sort of a philosophical way of approaching it, trying to figure out what exactly is going on. I think a big, <clears throat> big way I approach it is, so much of this topic is up to interpretation. And human beings, we are interpreted by nature. We're very curious. We are always trying to understand what is going on around us and, and, and ways to explain it. And that, of course, whether you're talking about religion or philosophy or just kind of existence has been such a burden for humanity. Why, why are we here? Why do we do the things we do, right? So something like Sasquatch seems to be somewhat philosophical in our own existence because it's this creature that lives in the wilderness. It's almost a perfect being in a way that it, it resides in these wilderness areas. It lives in harmony with its environment, right? This is, And I'm not talking about this is an established fact. This is just the way you look at it. The way I look at it, let's say if you, you were just to examine face value Sasquatch. It's a creature that supposedly lives in the wilderness and is in, in harmony with its environment. Uh, it's not like us. We are very destructive. We murder many of our own fellow human beings for various reasons and we have for thousands of years and um, we are we're complicated we don't we can't I can't just go live I mean I can go live in the woods and I've certainly done that for certain periods of time but it's not comfortable because our uh, the way we've sort of evolved and uh, culturally and, and our systems we need homes and heating and food and water we're, we're more high uh, demand than, say, a creature like Sasquatch, which is simply something that exists in its environment. So trying to negotiate the way people interpret things. So we talk about, say, the First Nations perspectives of Sasquatch, right, where they assign mystical powers, mystical qualities. Um, and it really, I think it just depends which group you talk to. You can talk to four different tribes, let's say, across North America, and they may have similar stories of a Bigfoot-like creature, but they have different ways they've interpreted it. One, to one, it's a, a creature to be feared. One, it's a creature to be respected. To another tribe, like the one I talked to, it was one that would folklorically was known to steal children and put them in a basket and take them to a cave. So there's a sort of it depends on who you talk to kind of thing because everything comes down to interpretation. Mm. Uh, and as you mentioned, Ben, with the two different camps, you know, there's they've kind of grown apart. I think high strangeness has uh, become very well known to a lot of people now, and there are certain, even the UFO topics and other topics are being looked at in a more holistic approach or you're looking at all of the things and seeing if they're related. Whereas, again, with most of the Sasquatch stuff, that I've come across, it seems to be a vast majority of it are people that are seeing something that they can't explain that is just trying to get away from them or somehow interacting with them without any other weird elements. But the the biggest kind of universal that I've seen is that I've talked to people who are extremely educated, people who barely have an education, uh, people who are very proficient in the woods, people who don't know anything about spending time in the woods, uh, various political persuasions, uh, they probably wouldn't agree on anything, but they are the types of people 
across a wide spectrum who claim to have seen a large, upright, hairy man-like creature in some sort of forested or wooded area in North America. And the, the, the universal there is that a majority of them, it happened when they least expected it. They were not going out looking. They were driving the roads or hiking a trail or fishing, and they had this experience. So that is something that uh, it kind of transcends all the labels and boxes we put ourselves in. It's just it happens to people. And, again, I've talked to people that you put them in a room, and they probably won't agree about anything except for what they saw. If they had a good Class A visual sighting of a Sasquatch-like creature, that's probably the only thing they might agree on in life uh, coming from very different backgrounds, right? And Mm -hmm whatever reason these people saw this thing and uh i don't know i mean it's you talk about some of the stranger aspects of course uh they're there and i don't want to deny them i think in the past what's happened is investigators have had a certain belief and one told a report by witnesses have either omitted details that they included that maybe didn't align with their own personal theory so they're they're doing a disservice in that instance because they are taking details that a witness gave them and said, well, that doesn't fit my theory, so I'm going to exclude that. I don't think that's right. Uh, And it happens on both kind of sides of the spectrum, right, where somebody can just have a mundane sighting and somebody maybe that's more of a paranormal investigator or from uh, from a more paranormal perspective will add attributes that are not what was originally reported because maybe that fits their theory. So I think, again, it comes down to circling back to what I said about so much of this topic and so much of the investigating is through the lens of what the investigator believes. So that's what uh, we have to contend with. And uh, I try to be as balanced as possible and really just talk about my experiences. I can't say what others have experienced, but I can just talk about what they've told me and what I've experienced myself. And I take it as it is. And if something strange, really strange happens, I, I won't I won't be afraid to sort of talk about it. I will just sort of uh, have to accept it. And that is, that's the kind of way I try to look at it as balanced as possible. Mm. Oh, great answer. And speaking of answers, we have Matt Moniz with us, everybody. Hi, kids. And before we hop right into more and more questions, it is unfortunately time for our mid-show break. So what we'll do is we'll... Talk to you in just a few seconds here on WON AM and FM. It's time to get out the vote for the very best of the BlackstoneValley.com presented by Landmark Medical Center. Got a favorite burger, favorite gym, a doctor, place to shop? Vote for them and more at the best of the BlackstoneValley.com now until November 1st. Show your support for the local businesses in the Blackstone Valley and let your voice be heard by voting for the businesses you love. Vote now through November 1st. Daily, once a day, at bestoftheblackstonevalley.com. Local and live at 99.5 FM. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our wonderful uh, guest, uh, Alexander Petikoff. And joining us finally is Matt Moniz after his harrowing journeys on 495. (laughs) So thank you for being with us, Matt. Uh, I appreciate being here, and I'm sorry for being late, but I can't control the weather and traffic. Well, you just try harder. <laughs> Leave earlier. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah. Sometimes it's uh, as my uncle liked to say: as soon as a, a raindrop hits somebody's windshield, they just forget how to drive. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so, I guess we'll we'll hop right right back into it. And we were we were just discussing um, the sort of different camps of Bigfoot Bigfoot research and how to negotiate the gaps between the two as investigators. 
And All right. Can we talk about the different types of Bigfoot? There's we, just as many different types as there are researchers and, you know. All yours, Matt. All right. Um, I'm sure uh, Alex can agree that there are a number of different forms that Bigfoot has been seen in, in terms of size and hair color and the way that they interact with people. Um, some say that they change their hair color as they get older. In most accounts, uh, I've heard people saying that juveniles start off as a reddish, rustic color, uh, similar to a um, hair color being like that of a Irish setter starting off, and as they get older, gets to a dark brown and then towards black when they get older, and then finally gray like some of us turn when we get older. Uh, now, Alex, have you heard similar things, I'm sure? Sierra Nevadas, I've heard stories of more very darker juveniles, darker hair color. Uh, there are quite a number of sightings. There is a famous case in Pennsylvania with a white-haired Sasquatch scene. There's actually a creature I was told about recently uh, by some guys down in Alabama. Uh, they call it the Alabama White Thang, and they spell it T-H-A-N-G. You know, add that little Alabama flair. Uh, and that is sort of described as basically a Bigfoot-like creature, but a white-haired looking creature. There's also the uh, researcher named Don Keating, who was one of the kind of first researchers in Ohio back in the day. He has footage of what he claims to be a kind of white-haired Sasquatch-like creature uh, walking off into a wooded area. So does that indicate older age? Uh, possibly. I know I was just up, uh, literally just got back last night from northern New Hampshire, where you have the story of the Wood Devils in uh, Pittsburgh and Coaz County. And the Wood Devils are described, at least in the folkloric story version that I've heard quite a bit, as being tall and, and hair covered in a grayish sort of hair, uh, which is interesting. So, uh, again, we talked about, and I mentioned it a little while ago, about the different uh, descriptions in places like Alaska being larger, hair kind of being colors all, all along the spectrum, but... Uh, down south being more shaggy looking, kind of maybe living in a swampier environment, uh, being more unkempt sort of thing. Uh, you live in a humid, damp environment, you're probably going to look a little more disheveled and your hair maybe have more volume in a humid environment. I know when I go down in the Florida, my beard and hair, I look like twice as big in my head region because of uh, the humidity, whereas maybe you're in, in Alaska and that's not going to be the case. Um, so, yeah, the descriptions seem to be all over the place. <clears throat> if, if they are, you know, many of them are, are true. If, you know, of course, that's a big if, but let's say, uh, you know, a bunch of these eyewitness reports, you take 30 reports from across North America, various environments, and they're all described sort of differently. I've heard even different facial descriptions, more Neanderthal-looking, more human-looking, some more ape-looking. Uh, it would indicate some kind of a great deal of genetic diversity, if that is the case. I mean, you look at human beings, we are very different. And, of course, we come from very different regions of the world where we have different adaptations. So we may develop different features because of the weather and the places we live in. I mean, just look at Europe itself, different ethnicities in Europe, how, how differently somebody from England may look from somebody from Greece, right? Uh, you, that person from England is not going to go vacation in Greece without a good amount of sunblock, whereas 
a Greek person may not need that. So, uh, and we've been mixing around a lot. So there's some of this going on. But with Sasquatch, it's it's just such a such a big question about just in general as we talked about what is going on. But the descriptions do seem to be all over the place. I've heard everything from that as as Matt was talking about the auburn rustic color. Uh, some people theorize maybe that has to do with certain tree color. I mean, there's adaptations. I've heard dark, white, lighter, uh, yellowish, blondish. There's reports from Canada where creatures have a different colored head. Um, some people have suggested maybe the skunk ape is uh, described as looking uh, like a skunk because it has a white stripe on it. I mean, there's a bunch of different sort of uh, descriptions that have been thrown out there over the years. And, it, it, yeah, it makes you wonder, is it all regional adaptation or is it just sort of uh, dependent on certain factors? Speaking of re- regional adaptation, we have Susan Spooler on with us to talk about some upcoming events. So, Susan, you with us? Yes, I am, and I have a special guest with me, too. I have Nick Redfern, who's also going to be a speaker at the Greater New England UFO Conference, which is going to be Sunday, on November 19th, at the Lemonster Veterans Memorial Center, 100 West Street, Lemonster. We have a great lineup, uh, Dave McCullough, uh, Jimmy Pesanito, uh, Mr. Haunted will be our keynote speaker. We have Dick Redhorn, of course, uh, and Alexander Petikoff and Matt Moniz, the two wonderful people that are here on your show. <laughs> and then we'll have a panel discussion. So, anyways, uh, Nick, would you like to uh, chime in and tell us about your latest book you'll be uh, discussing, as well as some of the weirder things that you're going to be telling us about? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, one of my um, big um, passions is cryptozoology. That's the, uh, the search for unknown animals. And um, now some of these creatures seem to be just li- literally unknown animals, but other people think they're more of a, a supernatural um, aspect. And, um, and for me at least, I think the Mothman is in that category, um, paranormal, supernatural. Um, rather than just an unknown animal that we just haven't found. Um, There's a lot of weird stuff with the Mothman. And um, basically the story began in uh, 1966 um, that the city of Point Pleasant in West Virginia, the the town, well I say the city, it is a city but it's very small. And, um, And in 1966, people were seeing this large winged uh, winged creature with these uh, glowing red eyes and soaring across the sky. And um, that was the beginning of the legendary winged fiery-eyed monster. And you've got the giant creature that tortured the city of Point Pleasant and also the beast that roamed from November the 15th of 1966 to December 15, 1967. Now, that's the story that everybody knows um, from John Keel's book, uh, The Mothman Prophecies, uh, which was made into a, a massive, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, a massive, um, uh, uh, it did really good at, um, in the cinemas, it was uh, amazing. And um, people who hadn't really had a, 
it was a real picture of Mothman. Even those people didn't know about it, and then then suddenly ran uh, to the uh, to the cinemas and uh, and really sort of um, sort of gave the story of Mothman even bigger. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that there is like a, a second um, side of the Mothman um, story, and this puts us into the, the present day. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, basically, why now, this is a question for you, <laughs> for all of us, why now are so many people having nightmares of nuclear war and Mothman, and that is literally what is happening. And um, are we on the fringes of a worldwide uh, war? How do prophecies work? What are the origins of this dangerous monster? Now, this is the, that is the other side of the story, um, because in um, although we had all this wave of Mothman in Point Pleasant back in the um, 1960s and, and partially into the um, early 1970s. But now, um, as I said just earlier, um, that a lot of people now, when they're going to bed, having these terrible nightmares, and they're seeing these images of um, gigantic, uh, gigantic um, mushroom um um, nuclear bombs going off, and and this is happening all over the place, and it's a it's a very disturbing situation to see the Mothman surface up again, and a lot of people think that these nightmares are sort of precursor for something along the lines of a a nuclear attack somewhere or possibly around the world, um, possibly even. And, but certainly the, the number of um, people who have got, have spoke to me about this now um, is 72 who've had these um, nightmarish dreams at night of seeing the Mothman in the bedrooms looming over him. And, um, and then that's what everybody, all these people have been saying that, um, yeah, we saw we saw this uh, explosion, gigantic explosions, and on top of that, uh, we've got the imagery as well, which looks just like the original uh, Mothman and um, this gigantic bat-like creature. So what I decided uh, was to... Um, well, you have, you have to deal with the original story, but, um, but with the new story... Um, that one, as I said, is, is sort of far more sinister. Um, but hopefully, you know, um, with these prophecies, sometimes prophecies do work and sometimes prophecies don't work. So, you know, we, we hope that, um, you know, in our uh, position, um, that it doesn't work that way. So, so that's sort of the, the theme of the book that I'll be talking about, um, at the event, and um, and this is basically the whole thing. Um, what is happening with Mothman now, and why, as the creature suddenly popped up from the 1960s, uh, and because right after that, 
pretty much it was gone. The whole thing was gone. And it, uh, well, really we're going to schedule you for until, a show um, on this so, very subject, Nick, very soon. Uh, watch your email this week. So, Susan, give us the, the details of the event one more time. It's a week from Saturday. No, it's not. No, it's, um, it's, let me see how many weeks it is. One, one, two, in three more, in three more weeks, three weeks from today, on Sunday, on November 19th, at, um, at Lemonster, I'm sorry, Lemonster, uh, Veterans Center at 100 West Street. It's right up the street from Lemonster City Hall. There was a, uh, a problem with the, I signed a contract that we, we couldn't have it there due to the election. Um, so it's, uh, 100 West Street. And and it starts, uh, registration starts at 8 a.m. And the lectures start at 9 a.m. And again, we're having Dave McCullough from uh, uh, Watch It Tuesday talk about uh, Bigfoot. And uh, Jimmy Pentanito, uh, Mr. Haunted, will be uh, discussing um, his his various um, books regarding haunted messages. Uh, Nick Redfern, who's on the phone with us now, will be uh, coming. I'm flying him up from Texas, and he'll be joining us to speak about Mothman. Alexander Petikov and Matt Moniz, who are there in your studio, they will also be speaking on, um, uh, Alexander will be speaking about um, uh, cryptid uh, creatures, and then Matt Moniz will, Matt, tell us what you'll have. Um, you'll have Betty uh, Andre, Betty, uh, Betty Hill's dress? Yes, well, I won't have her, her entire dress, but I'll have pieces of it. No. I'll have... Um, some soil from Rendlesham Forest, some stuff from Chris Bledsoe's case down in North Carolina, uh, ba- basic, some physical evidence from famous UFO yeah. cases I'll bring with me, and my lecture will be about trace evidence and what that it, what that means. Okay, oh, thank you so much. Yep. And we and we have a, 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 a group on Facebook, and the, the, the cost to come to the conference is forty dollars. You can register ahead of time. And um, I'll pay at the door. Very good. Thank you so much, Susan and Dick. Thank you so much, Paul. Good to hear you, boys. And thank you, everyone, for uh, for coming to make this another great event, another great New England UFO conference. You take care. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Susan. And thanks, Nick. Thanks, thanks, Ben. You take care. Ah, Susan Spooler, everybody. Now. I got off track. I forgot where we were. We were, <laughs> we were talking with Alex about the various forms that Bigfoot takes in terms of color and size. Yes, 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 yes. And the uh, I believe it was the the Bergman Bergman's rule. Was that it? Yes. Yeah. That's kind of a biological rule that animals tend to get bigger the further away from the equator they get. Fascinating. So that's exa- uh, a lot of undulates. Certainly bears uh, exhibit this, uh, a lot of mammals, so there is a sort of precedent for that sort of thing. So I guess before we, we run out of time here, because we're, geez, we're already like three-quarters of the way through the show, tell us a little bit more about what you're working on, where people can find out more about you, your your work with small-town monsters, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, one of the best places to find out uh, about kind of my projects is just my website, petikovmedia.com. That's P-E-T-A-K-O-V-media.com. It's got links to everything, um, but if you just search Small Town Monsters, you can find our website or check out our YouTube channel, and you're bound to find some bound to find some work that I've uh, had a hand in there. We've got a lot of different documentaries on various different topics, uh, Dogman, Mothman, 
uh, various paranormal categories and UFO stuff and a lot of Bigfoot stuff as well. And that's kind of what I typically focus on is more of that Bigfoot. But if we are talking about certain regions, like when I did my Bridgewater Triangle documentary last year, of course, I had Paul in that documentary. And you can't talk about areas like that. If you're focusing just on the Bigfoot sightings, you can't really talk about that without mentioning, of course, all the other high strangeness, the crimes, and everything else that goes on. So I do enjoy getting to talk about that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, so look out for some of my, again, I talked about a, lot, uh, a little while ago, the Alaska videos. There's still a bunch of those coming out, as well as British Columbia, which is one of those areas that's well-known as the origins of sort of the modern Sasquatch mythos that uh, we all love and enjoy. So that will definitely be some interesting stuff. Now, you, you bring up a really interesting point, and it's um, I, I liked how you, how you put it before. Um, this was probably like half an hour ago, so I'm going to take a little trick, trip in the Wayback Machine here. Um, the idea of the monstrous, right? You know, high, crimes being done in sort of these like portions of society that are pushed way out, right? If we think of society as like concentric circles, you know, the further away you get from the center, the more you know things get sort of disordered and, and chaotic. And this idea of monsters being on the outside of society, you know, anything from, you know, upright canine cryptids, which is just a fun way of saying werewolves, I suppose, and, you and you know, anything from, like, Bigfoot, etc., they're always on the, the outskirts of society, in very rare cases, right? You know, except for well, Mothman withstanding, right? Because that's always in, in sort of high-trafficked areas. I've even heard sort of anecdotal evidence of Mothman being present at, you know, the Reactor 4 explosion in Chernobyl, Right. There's no evidence for it, but it's it's kind of a fun story to think about because it's you know it's a piece of human folklore, right? Even if it is just paranormal folklore. Anyway, this idea of the monstrous being on the outside of society, right? You know, it, whether it's crimes, monsters, etc. Have you found that there's that that link between this idea of of the monstrous and you know the the experience in those areas, going through the bush, going through these like distant distant places. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, just a big part of it is uh, we don't control these areas as we do cities and suburban neighborhoods and our towns. I mean, there's those of us like myself that live sort of in the woods, and we know we don't have complete control over the environment. I mean, I can't tell the bears and the moose that live in my neighborhood what to do. Uh, they just kind of do it, so it's out of our control. But I think the idea that there are still things out there that we don't control is a romantic one to many people. And I think that's why we have these this persistence of these myths, whether if you're looking at it from a strictly uh, research perspective, if you think it's real or not, it doesn't matter. The stories are there. Whether there is a real source to these stories, I happen to believe there is. Many don't. But the story still exists, so there is still some sort of phenomena going on that we're, where we are envisioning some kind of a creature. And if we, if we go back to sort of some of that philosophical kind of talk we had earlier about this creature being sort of the opposite of us, we are destroyers, we destroy our environment and, and harm ourselves and, and the animals that live around us, whereas this creature embodies a sort of zen with the wilderness right it lives in conjunction with it not against nature as we increasingly are living so i think that idea that this thing just is out there is a very appealing idea to many people and it's it, in some ways it's a way of explaining mysterious things that we don't understand we go into these wilderness areas nowadays especially human beings even compared to our ancestors 100 or 200 years ago they were a vast majority of them lived much closer to the land 
they farmed and had some sort of skills in the woods, whereas now most of society, a vast majority, is living in urban or suburban areas and is completely being disconnected from real wilderness and real uh, nature. So we're losing that connection with nature. So uh, we don't have that understanding when people go visit a national park once a year. They don't really, I mean, that's the only connection they have to a place like that, right? As opposed to those people that maybe live in those areas. So uh, these areas, these deep, dark corners of the world still seem to harbor monsters, whether they be real or not. It, and it's kind of projection. It's something we're afraid of. But uh, in all my travels, I mean, I've heard some some very frightening stories, very frightening encounters with Sasquatch and other creatures. But uh, the most monstrous thing I've ever run across is other human beings, whether it be interviewing Alan Alves there uh, in Freetown and talking about the, the heinous murders and things he dealt with in the Freetown State Forest or uh, personally running into possible satanic worship in the mountains of Oregon, uh, drug deals gone bad. I mean, just very it's nefarious things, and the biggest monsters I've run across are consistently still human beings. And if you don't believe so, just turn on the news and see what's going on in the world and it's pretty evident that we are the real monsters. Then uh, there are stories of Sasquatches attacking people and some alleged killings, but they are a vast, vast minority of the stories. And even some of that aggressive behavior, as I was just talking to a friend of mine who had a very harrowing encounter in Massachusetts many years ago, uh, in the moment that encounter to him seemed aggressive, but it, it's, it's almost in a territorial sense of, hey, get out of my space. Uh, whereas uh, I've talked to many people who have had Sasquatch encounters and said, if this thing wanted to be dead, I would be dead, but I'm not. So I think that speaks to some of the, maybe the monstrous nature. It's monstrous in appearance, but humans, unfortunately, are the true monsters, at least that I've come across. Mm. Yeah. I, I agree. Uh, all the atrocities that I've ever seen has been been done by men. Yes, animals will attack, but they attack for very specific reasons, either to protect right. themselves or food. There's no, you, there are very few cases where animals have been malevolently killing people, except, you know, a couple right. come to mind, like there was a pride of male lions at, uh, uh, would. Savo lions. Yes. Yes, yeah. But I'm saying on the whole, animals are not going to just go willy-nilly attacking people for no reason. Mm, I guess the right, that's, a good, that's an ape. outlier case. Yeah. Yes, and thus disproving the term going ape. And so I guess really it's, it is it is true, and there's this, this idea I heard a while ago um, during during a lecture, and it was mostly about, like, you know, cosmology of the ancient world through various different mythologies. And the idea was, um, you know, the more you act in a certain way, the more you become like that thing. So it's like, you know, the idea of lycanthropy came from this this Greek king named King Ly- Lycaon, and he, his whole thing was he just did such monstrous acts that eventually he just became, you know, you know, a, he became a, a monster. He became a monster, right? Yeah. And it's like you know, ancient heroes and stuff weren't called heroes because they were you know good people. You know, they were heroes because they you know they exercised control on the world around them. And it was like you know, Her- Hercules just you know he killed all his own children. You know, that's just a fact. You know, and it's like despite what Disney may have you believe, you know, these these were not you know good <laughs> people. And and I think that that's that's kind of important is that there is this sort of run. In 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 you know human human nature right yep. where we do feel the need to exercise control over the world around us which is the exact 
opposite, right? You know, I'm re- I'm reminded of Lao Tzu, you know, and his whole his whole idea that you know primordial man, as he distanced himself from nature, he became more confused, and as he became more confused, he made things more complicated, and as he made things more complicated, it just made things worse. And it, and I I think that that you know not to wax overly philosophically about Bigfoot, <laughs> but you know it's 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 something to be said, you know. Yeah, well, as the old saying goes, control is an illusion. Mm, right. Truly. So what do you think the next steps are for Bigfoot research, Alexander, in this in these last few minutes? You know, what what do you what do you think the future of Bigfoot research is going to be? That's a good question. I think as technology gets better and better, it's going to tell us whether or not there is something that is truly flesh and blood and biological that is able to be proven. Because as of this point, I mean, there are people searching, but there's still uh, so few and far between attempts of people who really spend time deep in the wilderness and do things like what Diane Fossey and, and Jane Goodall did with chimps and gorillas. There's nobody really doing that kind of thing. Most people are weekend warrior types. Um, I'm not excluding myself in that. You know, I was just up for a few days in northern New Hampshire doing an expedition. That's not the, the amount of time you need to really spend. So as technology gets better, thermal drones are one way uh, to, uh, you know, be able to see if something's in an area, if it's really there. And that'll tell us whether or not there are perhaps something stranger going on or whether nothing's in the area. But I think so much of the Bigfoot research topic is really a matter of interpretation as we talked about the way people interpret what they've had happen to them. Because you can talk to 10 different Bigfoot researchers and get 10 completely different answers, even though they may be looking at the same data. They're looking at the same sightings and the same kind of scenarios, yet they can come out with completely different opinions and views of the topic. So uh, in some ways, for me, Bigfoot research has been more of a personal journey into some of the most uh, interesting wilderness areas in the world. And uh, I think that's largely it. But I think the future of the topic is going to be very interesting. There's more and more attention on it. People are becoming more interested in it. I think especially as we talk about, we get more distant from wilderness, from the woods. We don't understand it as much as we used to. Uh, Less and less people truly go off and live in the woods. So I think it's going to become more of an interest uh, that people have. And I hope that we will be able to come out with something someday to prove or disprove what is going on out there. But we may never, even if tomorrow you were to conclusively disprove Bigfoot exists, that's never going to happen. There's always going to be people who have stories and those folklores. uh, It's never going to go away. So in some ways, it's sort of a revolving door of research and interest but uh for those of us that have had things happen and have talked to people who've had experiences we know there's something going on i don't claim to have the answers or to know what that is but there is some sort of phenomena and people are experiencing something Mm. what a great note to end on so thank you so much alexander for being on with us and it's been it's been too long and we we hope to have you on again soon and tell us a little bit more about your work and, and hopefully you know you'll have more adventures to share with us Anytime, guys. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You guys are you guys have been great friends for such a long time, and I appreciate any chance to speak with you both and your audience. Well, hey, thanks for being on with us. And I, I guess yeah, we're running out of time here, but we do have a couple of announcements that we gotta we gotta get to here. So over the next few weeks, uh, my dad and I will work with uh, Reverend Michael Carter of Ancient Aliens on a very special podcast uh, with new information he has uncovered on the Ancient Aliens theme. And this will be a uh, fully video, and will be posted on our YouTube channel, and you can. Stay tuned for more information on that. 
As you heard from Susan Spooler, uh, the Great New England, the Greater New England UFO slash Bigfoot Conference is back, and there will be a one. This will be a one-day event on November 19th at the Veterans Memorial Center in Lemonster, Massachusetts. You can look uh, for more information on that as time comes. And we're just about out of time, so we'll just skip right to the end here. On November 5th, British UFO uh, hunter Gary Jones will share bizarre stories on Denby lights and that and as seen in Wales in 2012. I'm Ben Eno. I'm Matt Moniz. And thank you for, and my dad, my dad Paul is over there. And thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal.